are happy that the government hasn't closed down. Anybody <laughs> Who really couldn't care less one way or the other? Yeah. You ever seen such a mess in your life? Well, anyway, uh, the book of Revelation is about a government. It's about a government that had everything under control. And it had everything under control because it had tremendous military might that it used against its own people. Does that sound familiar? A government that uses the military against its own people. Uh, those kind of governments are tyrannical governments. They're dictatorships. They're not governments of the people or for the people. They are governments for the elite. And when and those kind of governments live off the backs of the poor people. In other words, it's the poor people who do all the labor. It's the elites who get all the money. And the purpose is to keep the people just the subsistence level, working harder and harder, and the profits move up and up. And the people are only seen as a means to an end. People are not the government. And that's what Revelation is about. It's about the Roman government and how it operates. And John, the apostle, is writing to the church saying, you're in for hard times because the government's going to turn against you. And the government controlled people in many ways. One way was through its military, through fear. The other was through the worship of the emperor. You wouldn't worship the emperor, you didn't eat. You had to worship the emperor in order to receive the benefits that the emperor had for you. And if you didn't worship the emperor in some way, you would not eat. And the church was going to be forced to worship the empire, emperor, and as a result, they're going to, not going to eat, they're not going to get wages. And that's what this chapter is about. So look at Revelation chapter 13. So the early church was told not to rely upon the government. Uh, they were to take care of themselves. They were to live uh, as an alternative people. Get together, pool your funds, and if somebody over here has needs, meet their needs. Uh, somebody over here works hard and is able to work hard and make a lot of money, share some of that with people in need. And that's what church is. The church is a group of believers that are of the people and for the people. It's an alternative government. You know that that the Bible calls the church a nation. It puts it in political terms. And we have a governance, and we have a way of meeting people's needs, and we have a king who lives and dies for the people. And he's going to come back and he's going to set up a government, God's government on the earth. And all the other governments will fall by the wayside. And all people's needs will be met. So it's an alternative government, the church is. That's why we emphasize in this class uh, that we bring a dollar, a dollar a week, which is what pittance for most of us. And we put it in one of the baskets in the corner because there are some people in the class who don't have the means to make ends meet. So those of us who do have it share with us. We're not under an obligation. We do it out of love and a concern because... That's what Jesus does. Jesus fed people. He healed people. He gave his life for people. And he is a, blesses people. 
and he blesses us, many of us, far beyond our wildest imagination. Just think about your own self, those of you who are successful. Did you ever think you'd be that successful when you were 20 years old or 30 years old? Look how God's blessed you. So what you do is you give back to God and you do it by, I like doing it directly, <laughs> just by putting a dollar in and passing the money out where it's needed. So in Revelation chapter 13 is where we are. And chapter 13 is about two beasts that John sees in his vision. John's having a whole series of visions. And in chapter 13 he has two visions and he sees two beasts. Beast number one, which covers verses 1 through 10, is a beast that rises out of the sea. And it represents the Roman Empire and the emperor. The beast, in a sense, represents uh, the government and it represents the Roman Empire personified in the emperor himself. And you cannot separate the empire from the emperor. Just like you couldn't separate Hitler from Nazi Germany or Saddam from Iraq. To say Iraq was to say Saddam, they were one and the same. And to say the Roman Empire was to say emperor, they couldn't be separated. That's beast number one. Then beast number two is found in verses 11 through 18, and we're going to look at that today. And we're going to look at the origin of this beast. So look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. The first beast came out of the sea. You see that in 13.1. The second beast came out of the earth. If the first beast represents the government, the second beast represents religion. The religion of the empire. Personified by an individual called the false prophet in chapter 16. In this chapter he's not identified, but the religion and the false prophet go hand in hand like the empire and the emperor go hand in hand. And the religion of the empire is a religion called the cult of the emperor. The cult of the emperor. When uh, Rome conquered a nation, you had to be willing to uh, worship the emperor. And if you weren't, you didn't eat. That's just the way it was. If you refused to do that, they would uh, enslave you. And you would just, you know, or maybe even kill you. So we have verses 11 through 18 deals with the religion of the empire. So both beasts represent systems and people. Beast number one, the system of the Roman government, the person, the emperor. Beast number two, the system of religion, emperor worship, and the person is the false prophet. Does that make sense? So let's look at the description. And by the way, according to mythology, if you go back into Roman history and Greek history and Babylonian history, all these mythologies uh, had stories of two beasts. Leviathan, who comes out of the sea. Behemoth, that comes out of the land. And so John, in a sense, in his vision, sees two beasts. These powerful systems and individuals that control things that are all powerful. So now we get the description of this beast in verse 11. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Now these are similes. You see that? Like a lamb, like a dragon. This is a description that John sees in his vision. That means that this false religion and this false prophet in many ways appears to be a lamb. Now what does Revelation say about the lamb? Who's the lamb in Revelation? Jesus. He's, Christ is the lamb. 
Well, in many ways, the false prophet's like the lamb. He appears to be docile. But guess what he does? He speaks like the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. So we saw that, you know, in chapter 12. And so while he appears to represent something that is humble and stable and maybe represent God in reality against God, he speaks the voice of the dragon. That is the power behind him. And we see this power when it says in verse 12, it says, and he exercises all the authority, not some of the authority, look at this, he exercises all the authority of the first beast. The whole power of the government is behind him. The full power of the emperor is behind him. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, that's the emperor, in his presence. So if the first beast is political and the second beast is religion, and the second beast operates all the authority, based on all the authority of the first beast, they're equals, aren't they? If sweetie over here, call her sweetie because she has sugar diabetes. Uh, sweetie over here has certain authority, and guess what? I have all the authority that she has, then guess what we are? Equals. We're equals. Religion and government in the Roman Empire were equals. You couldn't have one without the other. There was no such thing in the Roman Empire as a separation of church and state. Religion and politics went hand in hand. Separation of church and state is a modern invention. You know where it was invented? In the United States is where it was invented. So, imperial Rome and imperial religion are one and the same. And then look what he says. And with this power, he causes the earth, the second beast, causes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. That would be the Roman Empire, the emperor, whose deadly wound was healed, which we covered last week. So, we see that the emperor at the time of John is Domitian, and the religious system is causing the people of the Roman Empire to worship the emperor and the state. How do they worship the emperor? How did, how did a person worship the emperor in the first century? Well, who knows that answer? Through meals. Remember that? Through meals. You went and had a meal, and guess what you had to do? You had to sacrifice to the emperor. All the banquets in the Roman Empire, every single one of them, there was an hour and a half meal followed by a sacrifice that everyone made to the emperor by pouring out some of their wine. It was called a libation. And then the meal went on for another hour and a half. So everyone in the empire had to do that. No one was exempt. And there were great celebrations, and if the emperor came riding down the street in his motorcade, you know, first century motorcade, uh, and you were in the parade, on the streets in the parade, and he came by, guess what you did? You bowed. You bowed to the emperor. If you, were, if you didn't bow, you were out of there. Everybody bowed to the emperor. And everybody received patronage from the emperor. Sometimes he'd throw a great big feast for the whole 
whole city. And they would all say, lift their cups and honor the emperor. And then they'd pour out a libation, a sacrifice to the emperor. So everyone is forced to do this. It says he causes the earth and those who dwell in it, the earth would be the entire Roman Empire, to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now look at verse 13. And he, this this second beast, performs great signs, miracles, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, does he literally do this? Does this false prophet, the second beast, have the ability to just raise his hand up and fire comes down from heaven like Elijah? Now remember, this is a vision, isn't it? This is what he sees in his vision. In his vision, he sees this beast that looks like a lamb. In his vision, he sees something that looks like a lamb. Speaks like a dragon. And this dragon goes, Rawr! Fire comes in. That's in the vision. See, when you're think, when I'm telling you this, you're thinking of just normal people. But in the vision, these are all symbols. So does this mean that he can literally bring fire down from heaven? Or is this what we're going to call a parody? Now listen very carefully. Do you know anybody, for example, in the Old Testament who caused fire to come down from heaven? Yeah, Elijah, remember? He challenged the prophets of Baal and fire came down from heaven. Do you remember the two witnesses in chapter 11? It says, and out of their mouth came fire. Is John saying in the vision, this false prophet mimics the things that God's people can do? Is that what he's saying? That's why maybe he's mistaken to be a lamb, but in reality he speaks like a lion. Is this a parody of what Christians can do? Uh, If this is the case, what John is saying is that the Roman Empire is a counterfeit of God's kingdom. And when you look at the book of Revelation, it seems like it is a counterfeit. We have a God who's father. Do the Romans have a God who's father? Yes, they have Jupiter, don't they? Uh, We have a king, Jesus. Do they have a king? Caesar. Do we have a Lord? Do they have a Lord? Do we have a, uh, a lamb that was slain? Yes. Do they have somebody that got a wound that was brought back to life right there in that verse? Is there a resurrection here? Does it look like a resurrection? Look at verse 12. Whose deadly wound was healed? Do we have somebody whose deadly wound was healed? Jesus. Do they have someone whose deadly wound was healed? See, is this a parody? See? So I think that's a possibility. So it could be that maybe this guy literally does bring fire down from heaven, but it's not from God, it's demonic in reality. Another option, and this is why Revelation gets so difficult, is there's so many options on every one of these passages. I've probably read, in the course of my time studying Revelation over the years, uh, every major commentary that it's out on the book. A lot of minor comments. I've probably read, you know, 25 or 30 commentators as I've put together these kinds of lessons. And Revelation is a very difficult book. And it's very complicated. And there are all kinds of options when you look at a passage like this. So people who give you glib, simple answers are simply stupid. <laughs> now I'm going to say that. That's, that's, that's what I think. When they can give you just so clear-cut answers, I'm saying we're, they, 
they're just they're just mouthing something that somebody's told them. They're not thinking. Because when it says fire from heaven, either it's literal fire comes out from heaven, or maybe it's a fake, it's a trick. Claims to bring fire down from heaven. Looks like there's fire coming down from heaven, but there's no fire coming down from heaven. Because look what it says in verse 13. He performs great signs so that he can even make fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. Maybe this is a fake miracle. It's a trick. In fact, we know from the uh, Roman historian, Theo Cassius, that during the reign of Emperor Caliglia, the temple priests, the Roman pagan temple priests, actually had thunder and lightning machines. Thunder and lightning machines that could make fire come down from heaven. It looked like it was a miracle. And the purpose was to get the people to worship Caliglia as God. They wanted the people to worship the emperor's God. And so they said, and now I use the power of the emperor to perform a miracle. And they would go, ah, the fire would come down. But in the background, there was a machine behind the curtain that produced this lightning and this thunder. And uh, so did Pharaoh's magicians produce miracles? Yes, but they were basically tricks, probably. But Moses produced real miracles. So we don't know what it is, but something's going to happen that's going to cause people to want to worship the emperor. And John warns his seventh church is about that. Now look at verse 14. And he deceives those. See, that's why I think it might be a fake miracle. He deceives those. And who's the deceiver, by the way? Satan. That's the power behind it. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, or on his behalf literally. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So now, not only are they to worship the beast, they're to make an image of the beast. Now what in the world does that mean, to make an image of the beast? The word image here in the Greek is the word icon. An icon is basically an image, and in the Roman society, Christians would call those images idols. So Rome was an empire that was filled with idolatry. Remember when Paul went to Athens? He goes to Athens and uh, he's waiting for Timothy and uh, I think Silas to show up there. And he's sort of taking in the sights of the city, but he says he was grieved when he saw that the city was given over to idolatry. And so the Roman Empire was filled with idols or images of Caesar. Where were those images? On every Roman coin. There was an image of Caesar with a slogan, Divine Caesar, Son of God, our Lord and Savior. Right on the coins it said that. The same titles that we use for Jesus, Son of God, Divine, Lord and Savior, were first said of Caesar on those coins. These were images, and his picture was on there. In public places there were statues, and there were shrines, and there were inscriptions, Everywhere you went, there were pictures of Caesar in some form, either stone or, you know, in, on banners in the temples. There were statues of him. In sporting events, there were banners with his picture on it. In every home, there were frescoes that had 
the pictures of the Roman heroes, past war heroes, and pictures of Caesar. Everywhere, you, you couldn't go anywhere in the city. There were big temples on the hill that represented Caesar. Temples to Caesar. To the cult of the emperor. And to the Roman gods. You couldn't go anywhere in any city in Rome and not see Caesar. That is a mark of a dictatorship. Do you remember before we invaded, when we, when we invaded Iraq, the one thing that you noticed everywhere in the city? Yeah, were statues of Saddam, and then there were pictures of him, great big whole sides of buildings, you know? Look, in Nazi Germany, what did you see? Swastikas everywhere, pictures of Hitler everywhere. Uh, that's the same today as it was, you know, 2,000 years ago. And so... <clears throat> These were symbols that were designed to instill in the people a love for their emperor. Instill in the people a love for the empire. To instill in the people patriotism. Hey, we do it in America, don't we? We have American flags, and you go into the post office, you see pictures of the president. Doesn't matter who the president is, and it's to instill patriotism. This is how nations operate. And so these icons were emblems of the empire. And uh, they were more than just pictures of the President of the United States. They were up there to induce you to worship the Emperor's God. Because politics and religion were one and the same. And so when you saw these pictures of the Empire, Emperor, as, and it says, Son of God, you knew he represented the gods on earth. He was their divine representative. He's the Lord that we should follow Rome has a manifest destiny to rule the world. They've been chosen. Rome has been chosen by the gods to rule the world. Therefore, we must worship the emperor. And so this is what this is talking about. Now look at verse 15. And he, the second beast, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So now we see that this false prophet, this religious leader, has ability to give an image, and evidently there's this John sees in his vision some big image. Remember Daniel in his vision? Did he see a big image? Yes, he saw a big image too. Remember that? They represented what? That, that big image, what did it represent? Had feet of clay, remember that? It represented nations. John sees an image. It represents the Roman Empire. And uh, in his vision, it may not be a literal image, maybe it is a literal image. It's hard to tell, I don't know. But in his vision, the false prophet is able to give breath to an image. Now again, I think this might be a parody when I say that, because... Um, a parody means that, uh, or um, he, that the false prophet is basically mimicking, or the religion of Rome is mimicking the Christian religion. Uh, do you know anything that's made in God's image? Oh, humans. Yeah, we're made in God's image. Well, they were to make an image of the emperor. Something in the emperor's image. Well, God made something in his image. Human. And then guess what God did with the first human? What did he do? Gave him breath. Breathed into that image. So the image was alive and it could talk. This could be just a parody saying, think of the Roman Empire and its 
religion as a counterfeit to the real religion and the real empire, God's empire, the kingdom of God. You see, when you look at it uh, critically, you can probably see that John is laying out a pattern here of Rome being a counterfeit to the true religion. But, maybe uh, this guy, this false prophet can somehow make some image literally to speak. I don't know. That's possible. Um, we do know that uh, Justin Martyr, who was a Christian in the second century, died for his faith, wrote two books that were called the Apologies. Apology 1 and Apology 2. In Apology 1, he talks about Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. And in his book, he says, Simon was able to make a statue speak. Now, he did it through trickery. It wasn't real. But he was able to make a statue speak. And we know that there were Roman ma uh, magicians who had very ingenious ways of making statues talk. I mean, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones, any of those movies, you know, those kinds of movies, that genre of movie, you know, there's always a big statue at the end, you know, some cult going on underground in a cave, tremendous big cave, the biggest in the world, you know, and the people go, oh, oh, rum, 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 rum. <laughs> and then there's this big statue, and it's hollowed out, and this evil person sneaks in the statue, and he speaks through the mouth of the statue, and he says, worship Anak, you know, or something like that. Uh, the Romans did those same kind of things. They used ventriloquism, they used tricks, they used elaborate mechanisms to make statues speak. Maybe John says that's what you can expect to his seven churches. Uh, it will look like there's a statue that speaks. And what the statue is going to say is, look what it says at the end of verse 15, it will cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So the statue says, Worship the emperor. Worship the emperor. Worship the emperor. And everyone bows and worships the emperor. But six Christians stand, he says, Kill those rebels. Kill those rebels. Something like that. So, John is, uh, either these things are literally happening or John is saying, let me tell you something. The Roman religion, the Roman government is a counterfeit of all that God really wants to do. And that makes just as much sense. Now look at verse 16. He causes all, not some, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, regardless of status, to receive a mark on their right hand and on their foreheads. An imprint on their right hand or on their foreheads. Now, an imprint could be a seal. And again, this would be a parody. Are Christians sealed? Yes, we're sealed, aren't we? We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We get baptized and we say we are going to serve the Lord. We make an oath. In a sense, Christians are sealed. Maybe this is a parody again. He's just saying, Rome has a seal too. And uh, it's a seal that everyone's going to have to receive on their right hand or their foreheads. Now, if you took the typical crazy interpretation of Revelation, we'd say, oh, watch out for the computer chip. <laughs> Everybody's going to have a computer chip stuck under their hand or in their forehead, you know. 
uh, or something like that. You know, watch out for the barcode. Remember, that? Remember how Christians were afraid of the barcode when it came out? I don't think I'm going to use a barcode. Well, guess what? You're using it. You've taken the mark of the beast. Too late for every one of them. You know? <laughs> See, these kinds of fanciful interpretations don't work. Number one, this passage is not written to the church today. It was written to the seven churches in John's day. They didn't have barcodes. He's telling them to watch out. These things are going to happen in their lifetime. Now, do they continue to happen in each generation? Yeah, there are dictators that come along and they put their pictures up and they do all these crazy things and they want to be worshipped and Christians resist and that's why we have martyrs today. But primarily this was written to seven churches. So what should they be looking for? Uh, should they be literally thinking that they're going to get some sort of mark on their hand, you know? Like the Jews had to wear a yellow star during in Germany and in Nazi Germany, or had to get a tattoo mark when they were put in prison. I was grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of Jewish people when I was just a kid, and whose parents had come out of the Holocaust and were in concentration camps. And I'll never forget the first lady I saw. Her son's name was Jerome, Jewish family, and he was like one of my best friends. And I was only six years old, and I remember going to his house when he moved into the neighborhood. I was playing with him. He said, "Come on into my house." Came in. And there was his mother, frail little lady, and she had a tattoo of about 12 numbers right on her arm. And I remember seeing that for the first time as a child. It was sort of scary. Hitler literally put people, put numbers on people. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. Now let me tell you why. If you were a Jewish believer reading this, you would know exactly what he was talking about. Living 2,000 years later, we don't know what he's talking about. They knew just like that. Jewish Christian. Well, what in the world is he talking about? Let me show you. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now you're familiar with Deuteronomy 6 because it's one of the great chapters. That's where Israel's given its ultimate creed. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you're familiar with this creed. It's found in verse 4. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. This is Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the God, your Lord with God with all your heart and soul and your strength. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. You will walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets, where? On your forehead, between your eyelids. So, when God gives Israel the Shema, He says, this is what you should always remember, and never forget it. And you should put it on your hand, or you should put it on your forehead. Sounds very familiar to what you see in Revelation, doesn't it? Now, some Jews took this literally. And guess what they did? There's a little piece of material in a box that's called a phylactery. And some Jews would literally put a little box with the Shema written in it on their foreheads and they tied it around with leather straps. And they walked around with a box on their head, this little box. And some would wrap it around their arms. And if you've ever been to the Wailing Wall, you may see some 
very orthodox or Hasidic Jews going like this, and they got this box on their hand. I was reared in a neighborhood in Baltimore called Pimlico where there was a large group, not just Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews, the ones that had the curls. And the kids, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, and their parents, the men walking around with little boxes on their head and these on their arms. But that's, is that what re really what God wanted? That it had to be done that way? Where did He really want it? In your heart. What He wanted, now that may have been an outward sign, and some people did that, but not everybody certainly didn't do it. But what they did is they memorized that verse. What was the verse? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That verse spoke of Israel's loyalty to the one God. We worship one God. He is the Lord of all. And so when Revelation says you should get a mark and put it on your forehead or your hand, guess what the Jews think? That's the same thing God wanted us to do. Oh, this is a counterfeit religion. This is a parody of what God's, God's religion. What, what they wanted, what Rome required was loyalty. And they did have images. If you used a coin with Caesar's image on it, that meant you were loyal to Caesar. Remember when they asked Jesus if he should pay taxes? He said, who has a coin? Remember that? And they gave him a coin. Guess what he didn't have? He didn't have a coin. Why didn't he have a coin? Had Caesar's image on it, I doubt it. He wasn't loyal to Caesar. Anybody have a coin? Let me see that coin. Whose image is on it? Ah! That shows you where your loyalties are. Pay your taxes to Caesar. Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar claims that he owns it all, but guess who really owns it all? God owns it all. Caesar is a counterfeit lord. Roman Empire is a counterfeit empire. So, if you bowed to Caesar, that meant you were loyal to Caesar. If you ate a meal and poured out a libation as a sign, that was a sign that you were loyal to Caesar. You were branded as Caesar. You had his mark on you. didn't matter whether it was a literal mark, just bow. That was the sign that you were his. You were owned by Caesar. Your loyalty was to Caesar. So, I think that makes more sense than computer chips and barcodes and all that kind of stuff. Okay, now look at verse 17. And, not only that they would receive the mark, and that no one may buy or sell except one has the mark or the name of the beast or his number. So, if you want to eat, if you want to buy food, if you want to sell a product, it was necessary to have the mark. Literally on your hand, Literally, well, no, it just means you need to be marked as his. You need to show your loyalty to, to the emperor. Uh, now, notice that this mark now is described as a what? As a number. Do you see that? You must have the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number. Mark, name, and number. Mark, name, and number. So uh, now. It doesn't matter whether you have his mark or whether you have his name or whether you have his number. They all represent the same thing. These are symbols that John sees in his vision. And here is wisdom, verse 18 says. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a man. Now he's writing to his seven churches. And he says, now look, 
you need to use some wisdom here. You need to figure out what I'm saying, because I'm saying it all in symbols. Why is John saying it in symbols? Why is John putting it in code? Why is it encrypted? Why did he just give us the man's name? Why is he talking about Domitian? Talking about Nero? Why did he say something like, why does he put it in numbers and codes? Because he doesn't want it to fall into the wrong hands and somebody reads it and understands what it says. So he says, he that has wisdom, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For its number is the number of a man. So the number represents a man. And you have to have that number and be loyal to that man in order to eat and buy and sell and all this kind of stuff. Now, what is this number? Well, it says the number is six. 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 Now, what in the world? Now, look. If John expected the seven churches in Asia Minor to calculate this, if they had wisdom, we should be able to calculate this. So what does 666 represent? Well, we have a couple options. I'm going to give you the two options. Option number one is it simply represents a name. The numbers represent a name. Some languages, letters are given numerical values. If you were in the second or third grade, you learned your Roman numerals. Each Roman numeral is a letter, isn't it? The letter I represents one. The letter V represents the letter X represents ten. L C C one hundred. One hundred. Uh, D M See some of you don't know your letters. You you'd have a hard time figuring out this numerical letter system, wouldn't you? When I do the crossword puzzle on Sunday afternoon, and they will say, give a clue, Lynn has no idea. When they ask me for a Roman numeral equivalent, she has no idea. But guess what? I get it all the time. <laughs> I know the letter number system. Now, in the Hebrew language, letters were also given numerical values. And as a result of that, we can figure out uh, what 666 is here. And in Greek, certain Greek letters were given numerical values. And when you can figure out that numerical value, you'll know the name that he's describing right here. Okay? Uh, this is something that the early people in the first century were very familiar with. In fact, uh, when the ruins of Pompeii were uncovered after the volcano destroyed the whole area, uh, they uncovered a letter written by a young man and it says, I love number 545. I love number 545. And he was just putting it in numerical form. And you had to figure out who it was that he loved. It was like a little game. And so John puts it in this cryptic code, a hidden transcript, so the average person who falls in the wrong hands will not get it. So it could just represent a name, and if you can figure out that name, you'll figure out who it is. And we know now that the name represents Nero. Nero. Nero, who was emperor up through the late 60s, 
supposedly committed suicide, but now they thought he may have been reincarnated back into Domitian. Domitian was a new Nero. He was an evil man who was going to persecute the Christians. But the number may simply represent mankind. Mankind. God's number is seven. Man's number is six. Man was created on the sixth day. God's number is seven. That represents perfection. Man's number is six. He falls short of perfection. Six, 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 six. Do you ever do one of those mathematical problems and the, and the end result is six, 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 six? It goes on forever for six, 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 six. Never can reach perfection. Always falls short. So this may represent simply humankind falling short. Rome falls short of God's kingdom. Rome is a counterfeit. It's trying to pass itself off as a divine institution that has a manifest destiny to rule the world and emperor is the, the emperor is the Lord. And, but John is saying it falls short of God's kingdom. Okay? We don't know. But he says, let him that has wisdom calculate. So John is warning the church at this point. Be on guard. The emperor is a beast. He may be a man, but he's beast-like. The empire is beast-like. It devours. And the religion of the empire may seem docile like a lamb, but let me tell you, it's beast-like. It will destroy you and kill you if you do not worship the emperor. And so what John is saying to his churches is, hard times are coming. Get ready for it. And uh, for us, look, any time a tyrant rules, doesn't matter whether a tyrant is ruling in Rome, whether a tyrant is ruling in the Middle East, whether a tyrant is ruling in uh, Germany, whether tyrants ruling in Africa, hard times are coming for Christians. And uh, we can get that out of this passage. We may not know what the future holds, but we certainly know that the future holds hard times for anyone who lives under a tyrant. And we who are free need to be praying for these people. We'll pick up with chapter 14 next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our, our class. Each member who faithful to take care of the needs of others, who wants to live for you, be loyal to you, who refuses to bow the knee to any idol, any God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful, Lord. We've been faithful in the good times. Should bad times come, help us to be faithful in those times as well. Help us not to worry about buying and selling. What are we going to do, we say? What are we going to do? I need the bow in order to live. No. No, Lord, you took care of Jesus. Fine. You took care of his apostles when they left everything. All businesses behind. You took care of them. And you'll do it again. You'll take care of us. So help us to be those kinds of people of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.